This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 16th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to be looking at a few developments that have taken place here in the area of federal taxes. It was a relatively quiet week, but we do have a little bit to talk about this week. First, we're going to talk about the fact that the IRS gave us some additional guidance on the employee retention credit. Now, it's nothing like last week's guidance, where we looked in detail at the issues of related parties and uh, talked about some of that background and maybe how some people were going to be a little surprised if they hadn't actually detailed the law uh, in understanding what happened to majority owners. Uh, As I said, I felt, and I took the position quite a while back, that that guidance was anything but surprising. I think it's pretty much how the law read from the first day and how it's read since it was in the work opportunity credit uh, information or the Section 51 for years, uh, including how we were told it worked in 2015 in committee reports. But, you know, a lot of people were surprised by that, shall we say. Uh, Secondly, we're going to talk about the issue of the IRS did finally put out the auto depreciation limits for 2021, relatively late in the year for this to be coming out, but it came out this year. It was much earlier last year uh, that we got this information. This year got delayed quite a bit. Not sure what made it so difficult. And finally, we're going to talk about an issue that comes up all the time, which is proving timely filing of a document. In this particular case, the taxpayer was looking at proving timely filing of an amended income tax return. Now, the problem that we run into in that regard with the amended return is that you have to take your, if the IRS denies your petition, you know, denies basically your claim for refund, you have to take that to the U.S. Court of Claims or to the U.S. District Court. Taxpayer took it to Court of Claims. And as we'll discover in this fact pattern, it turned out that the Court of Claims was not going to view this in the same way the tax court did, and that ended up working against the taxpayer. We'll still get to the bottom line that, to be totally honest, the way to avoid all of those issues is to use something like certified or registered mail. That will serve to take the issue off the table. But that's not what the taxpayers did. In these cases, that's never what the taxpayers did, because if they did that, we wouldn't have had the case. So bottom line, it's one of those odd things. So let's go ahead and move on to our first topic today. We're going to take a look at Revenue Procedure 2021-33. And this was issued on the uh, 10th of August. And it really deals with an issue that I've been asked about quite a few times. Now, some people react to this like, well, it's not really going to make a difference. Uh, But in other cases, yeah, it did. And I think some people thought it wouldn't make a difference because they just assumed the answer would be what it does turn out the IRS will let you do in this case. But I think they also were living a little dangerously with that assumption because the IRS does point out in this case the actual law is not what they were assuming, but the IRS is going to grant a safe harbor in this case uh, just essentially to carve out an exception of sorts Uh, interesting that they decided to do this here and not in the issue we discussed last week. My guess is the one we discussed last week, that issue probably has a lot more implications longer term because 
that guidance is tied to a tax credit for payroll, which is what the Section 51 deals with anyway, and opening up a loophole there is not going to be very helpful down the line. While in this case, we have a very, very unique type of revenue uh, that, frankly, is also very easy to restrict. So I think that will explain why we get our differences. But the key question was, as you may know, to get the employee retention credit, you have to show a drop in revenue. Well, you have a couple of ways, we should say. You need to show that you had a decrease in revenue. The decrease in revenue numbers were different in 2020 than they were in 2020, than they are in 2021. But in both cases, we were looking at revenue and comparing that revenue to similar quarters in 2019. So that much is the same. The math is very different and the mechanics are a bit different of how it works. But we still have to measure this drop of revenue. So it was somewhat important. Now, in addition to that, you obviously could have the uh, full or partial suspension of the business by a government order, uh, or you could have the recovery startup business issues that come with these last six months of this year. So assuming though you can't get the last two and you're looking at revenue, a key question came up and it was, okay, revenue under 448C is what we are told to look at. And that looks at the issue of, you know, how much revenue did you have in the quarter you're measuring versus a quarter in 2019, looking at this issue uh, under the rules of 448C. Now, 448C, for those who don't memorize the code, uh, is, are the rules that deal with your revenue test when we're looking at whether you can go on the cash basis of accounting automatically, whether you can you know, use the 471C inventory method, that weird method, the TCGA thing. Uh, also use to determine if you're a small contractor and can get out of having to use the percentage of completion method for tax purposes. Also get out of 263 cap A uh, inventory issues. Those are all tied to measuring your average revenue under 448C. So what they are saying is, now we know that's being used to measure revenues of less than $26 million on average, but it's still a measure of revenue. So Congress said when they passed the ERC and they were looking at revenue decreases, they went back and they said, well, that's kind of what we mean. So the question is, should the following items be part of that revenue? What about when you get PPP loan forgiveness? Obviously, we know that's tax-exempt income. The question becomes, though, does that count as revenue? Similarly, if you are given a shuttered venue operator grant or a restaurant revitalization grant, are those considered to be revenue when received? If you look at the regulations under 448, you quickly discover that they are very broadly defining revenue. And very specifically, they tell you that tax-exempt income, tax-exempt interest income specifically, the, mutual, the municipal bond type income, is part of revenue, is part of what we're measuring for gross receipts under 448C. That it, the fact it's not subject to tax does not make it not gross receipts. 
And therein lies our problem. All of these are receipts under the broad definition of Section 61. They would be income, but we have special code provisions that tell us we don't pay tax on it. Based on the regulations, it certainly appeared that all of these would be revenue. And conceivably, if you receive them in a quarter where you were not subject to the suspension order and you weren't, you know, you're not a recovery startup business, which you probably won't be if you're receiving these, then most likely you may have a revenue problem because you couldn't show the decrease in revenue because this amount of revenue would be piled on top of what you naturally had in the quarter. And the IRS ruled in the ruling initially that, yep, that's how the law reads. All of these items would be revenue under the rules that we're working under, right? They are revenue. However, the IRS decided that, you know, basically that's probably not what we should be looking at, or at least not what Congress would have intended. Now, the question is, can they write a safe harbor for computing this? in such a way that they're not going to open the door to abuse in the future, which is, I think, the big difference in this week's answer to last week's answer. And they have decided that, yes, they can. Because what they said was, you know, in these carriers, you know, clearly when Congress passed this law, they meant, they, they specifically said, we want to allow people to claim the PPP loan program and be able to claim ERC. Also, we just don't want you duplicating the wages. Similarly, we, we want people to be able to have a reduction of revenue, I mean, or to have these grants, but we don't want them using wages paid for for the grants for ERC, but otherwise they can take the ERC. So Congress has decided for these things, which they call, the grants are kind of interesting, there, they refer to them as ERC-coordinated grants and specifically limit them to shuttered venue operator grants and restaurant revitalization grants. If you have PPP loan forgiveness or either of these ERC-coordinated grants is the term they use, then as long as you act consistently, you can keep them out of the computation of revenue for ERC purposes only. So if you are barely below an average of $26 million for the prior three years and you wanted to go for tax ba for cash basis, then this PPP loan forgiveness or these grants would push you over that limit. But for purposes of the employee retention credit qualification only, you're allowed to ignore them. Now, they do say you have to be consistent in this treatment for ERC and it's difficult to come up with a scenario right now where being inconsistent would have helped you, but not that difficult if the ERC were to continue into future years, you know, which is always possible. You know, we've seen it extended. And even though they're looking at cutting off the ERC as part of the uh, deal to get the bipartisan infrastructure plan through, uh, you know, if we continue to have these surprise issues uh, coming out with the COVID-19 situation, and we still are seeing industries that are being negatively impacted and struggling, you know, as they have trouble coming back under, 
you know, COVID. We've already seen in the travel industry, airlines have reported that bookings are now dropping again, and we're seeing cancellations go up again because of the Delta variant issues. Uh, if those things continue or they feel like they're continuing and we see it pushed into the next year, what the IRS doesn't want somebody doing is getting the ERC in 2021 by saying that, you know, the PPP income wasn't revenue. But then maybe in 2022, when they say we're going to measure you against 21 because of this new variant that we've got that is, you know, more serious, uh, they don't want them then to say, oh, well, I want to throw that back in at 21 and now measure my 21 with that bump against my 20, against, I should say, against my 22. So that's probably what the thought is on consistency. You know, they don't want any scenario where you can push it into a quarter to bump up revenue, right? Have it come down, then use another one of these later and swap it to allow revenue to be decreased by excluding it. So it does have to be consistent. That is a requirement for doing it. And it is kind of what I call a Nike election, which is a just do it. You just apply for your loan, and this is how you compute revenue. And if the IRS comes back, you will show them your computation, and you will show them the exclusion of the PPP loan forgiveness or the one of the two grants, and that's how you'll justify it. Now, the other takeaway from this, though, is only those two grant programs count as being excluded. So I know somebody's going to ask me, well, what, what, what if we got a grant from the state of whatever, the city of whatever, the county of whatever, because these were going on and continue to go on all over the place. Those are not excluded, right? It doesn't matter. Similarly, if you had another program and Congress did exclude that from income, but it's not ERC coordinated, so there's another grant that's also going to be income. So anything tax exempt will be, I should say, revenue, not income. It will be considered gross receipts for this testing purpose. And you'll have to factor that in in qualifying for the ERC. Right. So the IRS made it very clear. The general rule is you get a grant excluded from income. Uh, it's going to be considered part of your gross receipts for the purposes of the employee retention credit. The only exception are these two specialized grants and the PPP loan forgiveness program in general. Specifically, one thing that will be considered revenue is any EIDL grant. The EIDL grant is not listed in this notice and therefore would be part of revenue. So you want to kind of be aware of that. Next up, well, it's late. I guess better late than never. We've actually gotten the vehicle uh, least depreciation or the depreciation numbers for 2021 for vehicles. Uh, and what we have here is there's been some upward adjustment, right? So the first category is for uh, the cap on depreciation of vehicle of basically automobiles under 280 cap F, right? The, these limits on this. If you have a taxpayer for vehicles acquired after September 27th, 2017 placed in service in 2021 it is possible you might have acquired a vehicle personally before 20 before september 27th of 17 and you may just be placing it in service this year it wouldn't qualify for this okay whatever but in that case if you have one and so this will cover most of them and you don't opt out of bonus depreciation 
Then for the first year, the maximum will be 18200 For the second year, the maximum allowed will be 16400 Third year is $9,800, and each succeeding year is $5,860. If, if you have an automobile, right, for which bonus depreciation does not apply, the taxpayers opted out, or it's pre-September 27, 2017, uh, then the maximum will be ten thousand two hundred, right? Uh, the second year, your maximum will be sixteen thousand four hundred. The third year, ninety eight hundred dollars, and each succeeding year, fifty eight sixty. So those are your new numbers. Again, a couple of hundred dollars difference in most cases from the prior year. Nothing huge, but it will come up slightly. So that may or may not be useful to you. Horribly, at least they'll have to get you start the appreciation going. They also have the new lease inclusion amount tables for 2021 are in this revenue procedure. Again, that's procedure 2021-31 issued on August the 6th. So you want to go out and take a look and pick that one up as we go through it. Finally, let's talk about a court case this week. And this is going to be the case of McCaffrey versus the United States. Case number 1-19-CV-01112. This is the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. The decision was issued on the 9th of August. So the basic issue here with this case that we have in the McCaffrey case is that the taxpayer was trying to file a claim for refund. Okay. They filed a return. They were looking at filing a claim for refund. They sent the claim for refund in on the very last day for which a claim for refund can be filed with the IRS. So they took the letter down. They had it mailed at the post office. Okay. Now, what happened in this case is that we actually ended up with the letter got to the IRS but there was no postmark applied to the letter. So the letter, the letter hits the IRS, no postmark applied. It obviously arrives at the IRS after the last day for filing the claim for refund. Now the question becomes, is that return timely filed? Well, the taxpayer produced evidence, right, that and let's just assume, for practical purposes, that what the court assumed, that this evidence clearly showed that they deposited the letter in the mails at the post office on the last day for filing the claim for refund. Now the issue becomes, the IRS says this doesn't matter. The IRS says, bottom line, we got the return a week after the due date, and because of that, you know, we are, you know, we're basically saying your claim is disallowed. It was not filed in time. Now, there's no question. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? If I take a letter to a post office here in Phoenix, and I'm sending it to the IRS offices wherever, it's not going to be delivered until at least the following day. And that's hoping for some really fast movement that's unlikely to happen. So we know it's not physically getting there because that's what the law first looks at. You know, 
if in fact a document is provided to the service before the last day for filing it, that document's timely. So we're not going to qualify for that. Rather, we're looking at the special rules under Section 7502 of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, 7502 of the Code provides that so long as the letter is postmarked by the last date for filing, then it is considered timely filed. So if I go down, let's say I just drop the letter, drop the letter with the, you know, the document, the envelope, I should say, with the tax filing in it, in the little mailbox in front of the post office, because I don't want to go inside, so I just drop it in there. On the last day for filing, most cases that letter will be taken inside as long as I have, you know, put it in that box uh, before the last, you know, for the time they've committed to last pickup, and it's at the post office. So, yeah, we're pretty sure they they can watch the clock and go out there and pick up when they need to at that last pickup time. When they pick that up, they will be able then to bring that in. They'll apply the postmark. The postmark will have the date which was the day I needed to file it by, applied to it, that goes to the IRS, that letter is timely filed. However, what happens if they don't apply the postmark? Or what happens if the IRS claims they never got the letter? Well, in that case, it's really tough to show a postmark, right? It doesn't exist or, you know, who knows what happened to the letter. Well, 7502 provides a couple of exceptions. And 7502 provides an exception, and they're really there are following exceptions. If electronic filing is available, then the e-postmark date will be considered the date of filing. So, you know, in many cases, we'll be fine on that. If the tax return provides for, you know, if you don't have electronic filing, you just choose not to do it. If you send it via registered mail, the code says, the basically the date stamped on the receipt when you send it registered will be considered to be the date of the postmark, therefore date of filing. And the IRS by regulation is allowed to expand that up to include certified mail. They have done so. So if I go and do certified mail, which is cheaper than registered, I can still get that little white receipt and that will prove it. That white receipt has the date on it that's the last date for filing then I have proven timely filing no matter what the IRS says coming back. And I get people argue that all the time. It's like, no, I don't have to prove it was in the envelope. That envelope went to the IRS. I've got the receipt showing an envelope went to the IRS. It's up to the IRS to produce that envelope and evidence of what's in it. It's not up to me to have to somehow prove because obviously it's going to be very difficult to prove since I don't have it anymore, you know, what was in that envelope per se. I have the documentation. I'm good. Burden shifts to the service at this point. And now the service has to prove it. Also, as we've discussed in prior ver in prior uh, programs, the IRS has the right to approve certain designated private delivery services, which is very different from approving private delivery companies, uh, that will qualify as the same as, you know, the certified mail or registered mail. And therefore, if you can produce the proper documentation from the private delivery company for the specific service in question, then 
you can prove timely filing. Now, these rules per the IRS are the only ways to do it. Unless the IRS has the, unless the IRS receives the letter with the postmark, right, or at least right, doesn't lose it is a better way to look at it. That's the only way, you know, the only way you can prove timely filing if the IRS disputes it is to have one of those types of evidence, the electronic filing, the information, you know, the certified or registered mail receipt, or the documents from FedEx, UPS, whoever. And as we say, private delivery service, be very, very clear. Every service FedEx offers, every service UPS offers, they're not all qualified. You have to check what you're using versus the list. And we talked about a few weeks ago how, you know, sending it, what was the then, the, you know, the FedEx very first thing in the morning for before anybody should rashly be awake service. That wasn't on the list for a long time. And I forget what it what it's called specifically, priority first or whatever, was not on the list. And we've had a couple of cases where people use that and were not able to prove timely filing because they didn't use an approved ser- they didn't use an approved um, service, not an approved so remember it's not the carrier. FedEx is not who's approved. Specific FedEx services are approved. Well, obviously, now in this case, the taxpayer did not use one of those services. Hint, using one of those ways to absolutely lock down the date is what you should do always. We only get these cases because people don't do that for whatever reason. And, you know, if you're talking about a significant claim for refund, it is worth the time and bother to go to the post office, get certified mail, or worth the time and bother to find the proper delivery service option and, you know, go ahead and get that to FedEx, whatever, under that option and collect the data you need to collect within the week or two after. So you have the records because, by the way, the IRS does warn you, those companies purge their records after a few months. So you need to go in shortly after it's done and it's apparently arrived at the IRS to go download the entire record of that particular item or you're going to find FedEx doesn't have that record when you need to prove it to the IRS. It's, it's kind of interesting, but the way it works. So the taxpayer said, well, look, obviously we mailed this in a timely fashion. And look, the IRS got the envelope. And, you know, they got the envelope. There is no postmark. We have testimony and other evidence that we that we gave it to the Postal Service on the last day for filing. Plenty of time to have the postmark done. Obviously, the lack of postmark is a U.S. Postal Service error because they delivered the darn thing anyway. So that's how it got there. So, you know, we should be able to introduce that proof. And they pointed to a series of cases from the tax court uh, that goes back to the 1975 case of Sylvan versus Commissioner, which is 65 TC 548, that has allowed, if there was no postmark, the tax court viewed it that, well, the regulations kind of tell us what to do. If we have an illegible postmark, they tell us what to do if there's an actual postmark, right? They tell us what to do with certified mail. But the regulations never mention what to do if there is no postmark. So the the tax court said, well, we got to fill in that hole. And so the tax court allowed, if there was no postmark, you could offer extrinsic evidence of, you know, the time the post service was given the package and when, therefore, it should have. 
uh, made its way into, it should have received a postmark. And that could prove your timely filing. Well, the problem is, of course, as I said, this is a claim for refund. Claims for refunds generally don't go to the tax court because the taxpayer is the one now asserting against the IRS that the IRS owes them money. Because, remember, the IRS has the money and now we're you know, trying to get the money back. And the problem comes here is that tax court precedent doesn't necessarily buy the court, bind the court of claims. And in fact, the uh, court of claims, the judge hearing the case, essentially rips the tax court <laughs> and states that, well, Sylvan was decided all wrong. The law says the only way to prove it, and with the regs, the only ways to prove timely filing is a postmark on the envelope, right? You can put in some extrinsic evidence if you have an illegible postmark, which this envelope doesn't have. You could introduce, you know, you basically can put in the certified mail receipt, right? The registered mail receipt. You could do the electronic filing document. You could do the uh properly approved private delivery service documentation, saying, okay, all that'll work. They said, it does tell us if there's no postmark on there, you know, the postmark was never applied unless it gets to the IRS by the date, final date for filing, it is untimely. And therefore, the court said, the court of claims ruled that, sorry, guys, you don't have a timely filed claim because we think that, you know, the courts are not allowed to write a brand new piece of law into the text just because it doesn't matter if it's unfair or whatever. Congress can write that text. If Congress chose not to write that text and, you know, and the IRS by regulations did not provide for that issue, said so there's nothing to hang your hats on. The courts cannot make this expansion. And because of that, uh, your claim is not timely filed. The IRS is right. Uh, you're too late. You know, you're too late filing a claim for refund. And because you did not go through an administrative process to attempt to get a refund from the government first, you, ought, you also cannot file here because the law requires you to go through that process. So, sorry, guys, you're out of luck. We don't really care at this point how good, bad, or indifferent your case is. You blew it because you waited too long. Now, obviously, a couple of issues here. Uh, this is interesting because it's one of the first cases, you know, normally these cases are in tax court and they're over filing the petition to the court, which in most cases as a CPA, you're not going to be involved in. Uh, only a few CPAs are qualified to practice before the tax court. So theoretically, you shouldn't be filing petitions with the tax court. Uh, secondly, you know, the other catch is this actually does deal with filing a return document with the IRS because that's what the question here is. And it does go through that whole administrative process has to be followed routine uh, in the rules for filing, you know, going and suing the IRS for a refund. So that's part of the deal. But it does tell you basically what we know. And to be honest, more, more than we have seen more than once uh, the tax court, even when somebody claimed when the issue came up about late filing penalties, it's like, well, you know, realistically, 
you're told how to get rid of this problem so that it would never come up in court. Why didn't you do it? And they have, in fact, lectured CPAs and attorneys on that little issue. It's like, you know, if you had just done it this way, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. You know, if you had not, if you'd not just tried to, you know, take an envelope, seal it up and dump it in the, on a, you know, in a mailbox somewhere, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So make sure major documents are filed using one of the approved methods and make sure your clients are told for any document they are to file with the government that they want to be sure and use one of the approved methods to approve timely filing. This also tells us, yeah, be aware. You know, in the case of an amended return specifically, uh, it certainly appears that you may be a little concerned about not relying on the Sylvan cases and following because you can't get to the court where the Sylvan case would control. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting little mess to deal with. Well, I wanted to remind you one more time, I do have those courses coming up, Arizona uh, Live and Webcast. Uh, August 19th, Income Taxation Trust in the States. August 20th, it'll be Assisting the Survivors, the CPA's role in the Seeds of State. By the way, those two courses do have some overlap because both are going to cover. Obviously, the first one is going to cover entirely income taxation issues of trusts and estates. And the second one's obviously going to be talking to at least to some extent about dealing with that estate income tax return. So, yeah, there's some overlap in those two. I will warn you about that in case you did sign up for both. And then the following Monday on the 23rd, I will be talking about partnership and LLC taxation advanced issues, looking at the BBA audit regime and some other things from, you know, that are just more advanced issues you hit in partnerships and uh, LLCs. Again, these are at the Arizona Society of CPAs, ASCPA.com. You can check their courses if you want to look at that. It'll be an interesting exercise as we try to work in a, in a Delta COVID era in a course. So this ought to get real interesting when we get there. So we'll see what goes on there. But obviously, we also have this totally remote, just as we always do. So you, you, you can sit at home and, you know, do what you wish to do if you want for that. It's there and available. So we'll hopefully see you virtually or actually uh, in those courses if you're available. You know, remember, there's a society. It's obviously cheaper. So that's how we go. So again, this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of these August 16th, 2021. Again, brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. I do watch for questions on uh, certain state society listservs or connect sites, whatever you call them these days. So you will see me checking in on Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Minnesota, Washington, uh, also, we'll look in on Idaho service as well. If you have questions and you're in those states, members of those societies, you want to post a question up on the board. It'll first be open to everybody else to look at and answer, but I'll also see if I can sneak in and say anything useful there as well. Otherwise, well, we did get the infrastructure bill out of the Senate. Of course, that doesn't tell us much because we have to get it through the House, and that may be more complicated than you might think because there's an interesting negotiation issue going on over there. Uh, that's going to probably tie it or not tie it to reconciliation. And we'll see if there's any way to get it through 
with a majority vote. That ought to be interesting uh, when they come back from the recess. So we'll see what's there. And if they do finally pass something and they get a conference bill and that and that becomes law, or we've got a commitment to be signed into law, then we'll take a look at that over here. Until now, I'm kind of ignoring that bill. Because, again, don't don't waste a lot of time on things that may never become law. So we'll see what goes on. But otherwise, uh, take care. Have a good week. If you're at the courses or online this week, I'll see you then. Otherwise, I'll see you back here next week for current federal tax developments.